0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. What do circumcision, slavery, singleness, and shopping have in common? You ever thought about that? Neither have I, until I started to think about the text that we are going to work through today. There is a, a particular uh, freedom that comes in just plotting our way through a book of the Bible, which is what we're doing in First Corinthians, if you're with us for the first time today. Today we find ourselves in the middle part of the 7th chapter of First Corinthians. This letter was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a group of very gifted but very selfish and very self-absorbed Christians who the Lord had planted this church through Paul several years before and now they're experiencing problems all sorts of problems problems with leadership problems with their own sin uh... problems with sexual immorality problems with marriage problems with spiritual gifts problems understanding good doctrinal truth And now they're writing back to Paul, and he's getting word about some of their problems. And as a good pastor who's now moved on to plant other churches, he's writing back to them. And so the 16 chapters of 1 Corinthians are some of the nittiest and grittiest words in the entire Bible. They're not just sort of these moral platitudes. In fact, none of the Bible is, but they are really down in the trenches of our life, and they, they handle all sorts of issues. And we've just been working our way through 1 Corinthians, as is our custom to do on Sunday mornings, to so just work our way through a book. And today we find ourselves midway through 1 Corinthians 7. Now, today we're going to do something a little different. Usually I'll read the whole text that we're preaching on, and then we'll kind of go back and draw out some points. Today, because there is so much covered in these, this passage that w- we're going to look at, and because it's a little bit longer than what we usually handle on a Sunday morning, I'm just going to pray in a moment, and then we're going to work our way through these verses. And so what we're going to do is we're going to kind of think of it like this. It's kind of like, you know, um, when you take all the, the laundry out of the, the, the clothes dryer, you know, and, and out of the dryer, and you put it in the basket, and you've got to take it to the bed and sort of sort it out and fold it. I mean, I don't ever do this, but evidently it happens. Some, some, some magic clothes fairy at my house actually does this, um, and you kind of, you, hey, baby, how you doing? <laughs> <laughs> and you have to, you know, sort it out. And so we're going to kind of sort out what, what's in this text. But here's the overarching point that I believe that we're looking at in these 23 verses or so. And this overarching point is that Paul is saying as he addresses particular situations that we as Christians have this great privilege to live not just for these few decades that God gives us, but to lift our eyes and live in full view of eternity, knowing that true satisfaction rests in life forever with Christ. And this knowledge, this longing should produce in the Christian a sort of strange otherworldliness, but yet fruitfulness here in this life. So it's not forget about this world and only think about what's next. But it is so focused on what awaits you that it frees you to be free from the idols of this age so that you can actually give yourself to these 80 years so that you might be productive and bear eternal fruit. I think that's the overarching point that Paul is making. So to flush that out, we're going to work our way through these verses. I'm going to make a bunch of little points. And then we're going to settle at the end on three big truths that I see in this scripture and then we'll receive communion together. So let me pray and let's read the text. Lord, thank you for this this book and for these words and how in your kindness you have settled us as a church down on the supremacy and the centrality of your word. You form your people through your word. You form this world and the universe and everything in it through your word. You save us through your word and you form and you build your church on your word. And so now, Lord, would, would I be more than just a deliverer of these truths? But, Lord, as I have prayed this week, would these truths implant in my own soul first? And then would they work themselves out incarnationally through my life? And, Lord, for the Christians in this room, I pray that you would, as I always do, I pray that you'd stir our affections for Jesus. That we would fall more in love with christ today and for those in this room and certainly there are people in this room that do not know jesus in a crowd this size i pray today god by your great mercy that you might cause them to be born again that you might cause scales to fly, to fall from their eyes and that people in this room whose hearts are dead and they're lost in sin and self-absorption Lord, would you be so kind as to cause them to see Jesus? Would you give them a new heart? And would the first breath of their new heart that you have given them be faith and repentance? So, Lord, would you do these things, I pray, for your glory and the joy of your people in Jesus' name. All right, let's read in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 17. Paul starts off with, in this particular passage, with a view of... Uh, the issue of a problem, understanding circumcision in the Corinthian church. He says in verse 17, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. And so he's saying that because he's saying, Look, I don't want you Corinthians to think that I'm just laying down some sort of special instruction for you, but this is for everybody. It'd be a lot like a parent correcting a child And they'd say, hey, this is for all of your siblings, so don't think that I'm just zeroing in on you, Corinthians, is what he's saying. Verse 18, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? In other words, when you became a Christian, were you already circumcised? In other words, you were very likely an ethnic Jew, and so were you already circumcised? Let him not, listen to this, this is a seemingly puzzling sentence. Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. So he's saying to the Jew who's already circumcised, who then has become a Christian, and now they're hearing the gospel of grace, this new covenant of grace that Paul is preaching, and he's saying, look, your salvation is not bound up in your fleshly circumcision, but it's bound up in the grace and the circumcision of your heart. He's saying, don't be uncircumcised. Honestly, before I read this and studied this passage, I didn't even know that was possible. But evidently, even in the first century, brace yourself because this isn't exactly fun to think about. There was evidently a surgical procedure in the first century whereby they would undo circumcision. I'll leave it to your imagination as to how exactly that happened, but let's just say that probably wasn't the most enjoyable experience in the world. And so what's going on is is that these Jews, who were already circumcised, then are becoming Christians, hearing this gospel of grace, and then they're in this pagan Corinthian, Roman, Greek sort of Hellenistic culture, where circumcision was mocked and ridiculed and looked down upon, coupled with the fact that now they're realizing that true faith in Christ is found in the circumcision of the heart. And so so they're sort of ashamed of this previous spiritual experience, which was very valid for them up to that point, before they knew Jesus, very valid. In fact, the Lord commands it for His people in the Old Testament. I'm not downplaying the importance of circumcision at all, but what's happening in the old life of the Jew in the Old Testament. What's happening now is this Jewish person that's becoming a Christian that's wanting to go through this dreadful procedure for the sake of some social insecurity. And so what would happen was is that the Jewish men who had become Christians who were circumcised now were going to this spa, sort of like a, like a men's workout place, where evidently they would see each other. Forgive me, parents, if your children are in here, but this is in the text, this is where we're going. And they would see one another. It would become sort of an object of ridicule for the Jewish person who's become a Christian who had been circumcised. And so Paul is saying: don't be so caught up in social standards of your day because God has called you. He's. You're a Christian now. Who cares what's happened? Who cares where? be confident in Christ and we sort of look at this and we say oh my gosh really they were that desperate friends we are very much the same do we not allow ourselves to get self-absorbed with physical appearance and clothes I mean we spend money on diet pills and tanning beds and gym memberships and all manner of things that reveal the fact that our heart is very tuned in to what other people think of us on the outside. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't work out and try and be in good shape and we shouldn't eat right. and All, the, all these things can be good and admirable pursuits in and of themselves just as circumcision for the old testament jew was a good and right thing for him to do but then when it begins to draw your heart away and you become so consumed with what everybody thinks about you paul is warning them no no don't go down that route so verse 19 for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision but keeping the commandments of god verse 20 then he He gives him this beautiful sentence that he repeats several times in the text. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. So there he addresses people who were in their insecurity wrestling with this issue of circumcision. And we are not unlike them at all. All right, then we get into verse 21, which now transitions into this this issue of slavery. Were you a slave when you were called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So, brothers, again, he repeats to these people, this group of people that he's addressing, people who are slaves, with the same. Uh, with the same exhortation that he exhorts those battling with this issue of circumcision in verse 20. He says in verse 24, So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Now we've got to do a little bit of work here because this sort of offends our modern American sensibilities. And we have to do a little bit of work thinking about what slavery was in their context it seems like Paul is sort of not railing against this very obvious sinful institution of slavery so what's going on there well in the Corinthian culture and in the Roman Empire during this time the the population would be basically divided in thirds there would be those who were born free then there would be those people who were uh, slaves and then people who were had bought their way out of their slavery now this is a bit of an oversimplification but for the most part slavery was not quite the context that we think of it as the dreadful sin in our American history in the 1800's, 1700's and 1800's where it was, where it was a, a much more of a servitude and a, a real ethnic issue. What's happening a lot of times in this context is people would often sell themselves into slavery as a way of sort of working out some debt that they had or maybe getting through a particular time in their life and that was just the only option. And then even after they would potentially buy themselves out of slavery, they would continue to work with their owner and even have good relationships with these owners. And several times in the New Testament in Philemon, you see uh, this whole issue of slavery being brought up. In Colossians, you see it being brought up again. And it sort of shocks us as modern day Americans, why Paul wouldn't seem to hammer this issue more than he does. But slavery didn't quite have the context that we think of it as as modern day Americans but even in that Paul is saying that he's not addressing social institutions here he's addressing the heart of a Christian who finds himself in a circumstance that in God's providence they are in and he's not saying that you should just be c'est la vie what happens sort of a fatalist because he's saying that if you're a slave that if the opportunity for freedom comes to you you should avail yourself of it But I think the bigger point that he's making is is that when we are Christians, we should fully serve Christ in whatever situation we are. How often do we say in our hearts, or this sort of lurking thought comes in our hearts, that if I had this job, or if I were in this situation, or if I were married, and we'll talk about that in a second, or if I lived here, or if I had this boss, or if, 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 if then I could truly serve God the way I believe he's calling me to serve. And Paul is attacking that mentality for these slaves. He's wanting to rouse them out of sort of this fatalism and focus on their circumstances and saying that you, you even in the situation that you're in, can fully serve Christ where you are. God's work in your life, God's setting in your life, God's providence in your life trumps your external circumstances. Now, of course, friends, this is not a sort of Subtle uh, repudiation of self, the attempts at self-improvement. I believe that God is all for that. And we'll talk about this a little bit more at the end, but there's a fine line between us trying to better ourselves and then it's slipping into idolatry where we become the focus of the universe. And so Paul is saying that there is often a very subtle idolatry that exists in our attempts to take ourselves out of less than de- desirable experiences because in that moment, we may be completely missing the fact that God has us there for a purpose. Not that we're going to be there forever, but that God wants to do something in us in that moment. And so he says to the circumcised, remain as you are. So he says to the slave, remain as you are. If you have the opportunity to get out of it, get out of it. But be satisfied in God in the station of life that you are in in this moment okay then he moves into a uh, a sort of instruction for unmarried people now he's going to use a word that we don't use very often it's been translated in our English Standard Version is betrothed maybe if you're working with the NIV it says virgin or maybe uh, in the NASB it might say virgins as well but what we're really is in view here is an unmarried younger woman and the word translated directly from Greek into English would be, would be virgin. And so we can sort of in that context for today think of this when he says betrothed as an unmarried woman, young woman. So verse 25, now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord. That means that Jesus in his earthly ministry in the Gospels did not speak directly to this subset of the population, at least that we have recorded in the Gospels. So I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Verse 26, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. So what was that present distress? Well, we don't exactly know. By all the scholars that have spent centuries looking at Corinthians, they think that there was probably some famine in the culture at that time, and so it wasn't a real good economic time to marry And so Paul is maybe, we're not sure of this, but he's maybe saying that because the stock market is very unstable and because the gas prices are high and because you've got $30,000 worth of student loan and because you don't have a job, you're not ready to get married. I'm sorry, I've digressed into modern day situations. But so the point is, is that the economic climate is good And so you're still eating Captain Crunch on your mom's couch. You're not ready to get married. I'm sorry. There I go again. But the point is, is that I think probably what's going on here is he's just giving sort of a in the moment sort of practical piece of advice that because of this present distress, maybe for some of you, you should just kind of hold what you got. And it's not the best time to get married. But in a second, he's going to endorse marriage as well. So verse 27, he says, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. And so he goes from addressing unmarried women, betrothed virgins, to then kind of backing up a second and repeating some of the truths that we looked at a couple weeks ago when we looked at divorce and remarriage in the gospel. And just kind of to step back to married people, he says, but, but are, you, are you bound to a wife? Are you married? Do not seek to be free. I, I say again, if you are married, it is the Lord's will for you to remain married. Irreconcilable differences are not a biblical reason for divorce. If you missed the message a couple weeks ago on divorce, remarriage, in the gospel, I really encourage you to get it and listen to it and wrestle with it. There are only two biblical reasons for divorce. What Jesus mentions in the gospels, sexual immorality and then where Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 7 earlier in the chapter abandonment by an unbelieving spouse and even in those situations I believe it's the Lord's desire and hope for you to reconcile and stay in that marriage but Jesus echoing what Moses said in Deuteronomy he says because of the hardness of your heart Jesus allows for the breaking of a marriage in those contexts if you find yourself in a divorce you are now you're hearing this for the first time and you have been divorced and you have been remarried unbiblically, do not let your soul sink into condemnation. Repent of your current circumstance and remain as you are, Paul would say. To find yourself in an unbiblical divorce or an unbiblical remarriage does not mean that you need to wear the scarlet letter A for adultery around your sweater for the rest of your life. There is grace in the Lord. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. But I'm speaking now to people in this room who may be in a difficult marriage, who are considering divorce. Once again, Paul comes back to it. Do not seek freedom from this marriage. Trusting in God that even in the difficulty of your circumstance, God might be glorified in some way shows something far more eternal than just your happiness in these few decades. Marriage is much more about our happiness it is about displaying the gospel of Christ where he he marries his bride he ransoms and secures his people and he never leaves them we could preach the same message again from two weeks ago but I will resist that temptation so Paul writes to these people and he says are you bound to a wife don't seek to be free are you free from a wife in other words are you single then don't make it the idol of your heart and everything about yourself To be your desire for a spouse. Does that mean that if you're single and you have a righteous desire to be married, that that is unrighteous? No. It means that when your desire or your hope for a circumstance in your life, whether it is a spouse or a job or a baby or whatever, when it becomes your functional savior, it becomes an idol. And Paul is saying, don't let your pursuit of things in this world, even good things like marriage, become your functional savior. Because although you would never confess it with your lips, everything in your heart, in your mind, in your subconscious is pointed towards this irrational, unbiblical stance that says that when I get this, then I will be happy. And Paul is guarding the Corinthians' hearts, and he's guarding our hearts against that idolatry of functional saviors. Friends, I know that well. When I was a young man battling with sexual temptation and lust, I remember thinking, when I get married, this will be free. I will never have to deal with this again. I remember being a young lieutenant in the army thinking when I, I was just talking to JJ about this just a second ago, when I get a ranger tab, then everything will be okay. When I get to be in the ministry, then my life will be fulfilled. When I get some people coming to the church, then it'll be okay. When I get 50 people, then I'll be satisfied. When I get 100 people, then I'll be satisfied. When I get 500 people, then I get satisfied. And do you realize what you do when you buy into that? subconscious dissatisfaction with God, you are saying that you are justified, you are satisfied by something other than Jesus. And that's not to say that Jesus doesn't doesn't sometimes want to give you, in fact, often want to give you blessing and cause you to be satisfied in things in this world. But when you attach ultimate satisfaction to anything outside of Christ, it becomes an idol and a functional Savior. And friends, it always disappoints. Whether it's a good wife or a great church or a ranger tab or a good job or a salary, it always disappoints when it's not filled with the fullness of satisfaction alone in Christ. And that's what Paul is saying to the circumcised, to the slaves, and to the unmarried and the married. He's saying, don't long for something and make it your functional savior. But then he gets back down into it in verse 28, and he's not saying that marriage is bad or singleness is bad. He's saying in verse 28, but if you do marry, you have not sinned, and if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned, yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. So what he's saying is, hey, listen, if you get married, great, but I want you to know that if you're going to get married, just like I said, if it has been your functional Savior and you have idolized marriage because you've been watching TLC and the Wedding Channel and Bridezilla all of your life, and, and then you get married, and he snores, and he's sloppy, and he doesn't wash his dishes, and he showers only two times a week, and your bubble is burst, then your heart will be revealed for the fact that you put too much hope in this now new circumstance in your life. And so he's saying, it's, it's going to be difficult. And then he says, and we'll get to this, we'll, we'll, we'll hit these verses again at the end, but then he says some of the most beautiful words in the entire letter of 1 Corinthians. He says, he now blows it up. He steps back from, from, from circumcision and slavery and singleness and marriage and he, he amplifies it to all of life and he says, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time. In other words, our Our life here on this earth, the appointed time, has grown very short. From now on, listen to this. Listen to this. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it for the present form of this world is passing away <laughs> wow what a what a couple of sentences paul is saying that look it's good to be married and it's it's good to go shopping and it's good to rejoice and it's good to mourn and and it's good to be circumcised. Or maybe it's good to not be circumcised. And maybe it's good in this context for you to be a slave. And maybe it's good for you to pursue freedom. But what he's saying is, is as you give yourself to life here on this earth, don't let the tentacles of these 80 years take you under as if you live that everything terminates on you in these 80 years. So live in this strange sort of fruitful otherworldliness where your heart is tuned in. Listen, you are an immortal being. Do you realize that? Do you realize that everybody in this room is immortal and that the only option for every person in this room is a real heaven forever or a real hell forever? If you don't trust in Jesus, it's not just like you get snuffed out and annihilated and cease to exist. The Bible is clear that every person in this room is eternal. And, and what Paul is saying is he's saying live for eternity and then let that longing produce in you a sort of deep effectiveness here in this world and so rejoice man party 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 man in fact there's a chapter in the bible in leviticus where god shows up and he says i'm gonna smoke you guys because you didn't party hard enough now we're not talking about friday night at the frat house we're talking about righteous partying we're talking about celebrating life here on this earth man Throw the birthday party. Enjoy one another. Enjoy life. Smell the rain. See the flower blossom. Enjoy life. But don't let that enjoyment terminate on this this world. Live for something beyond that. And that's what Paul's saying. I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm making my three big points in the middle. But you'll, you'll just hear it again in a second. And so then he continues in verse 32, and he gets back into married and unmarried people as he took that little diversion into blowing it up into all of life. And he says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So listen, let's, we need to do a little work here. Paul is saying that when you're single, you're more freed up to give yourself wholly to some ministry that the Lord may have for you in that moment. And when you're married, you're going to be a little bit more consumed with marriage and family issues. Now, I think it is good and righteous for us as husbands and wives to be, various times in our lives, very consumed with one another in the sense that we're trying to serve one another as Christ served the church. And he's not sort of all of a sudden contradicting himself, like in Ephesians 5 where he says, men love your wives as Christ loved the church, and women, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. He's not all of su- a sudden bashing marriage. He's just making the very practical observation that if you're single and you spend all of your time being single, sinfully pursuing the functional Savior, making an idol out of marriage, that you are wasting your singleness. You're wasting, don't waste your singleness. Don't waste whatever station in life you find yourself now in by, in a self-absorbed sort of way, pursuing what's next. He's not saying that what's next isn't coming or it's not good and great for you to want that. But he's saying don't waste your singleness. All right, let's go into Verse 36 through 38. Now, this is some very difficult verses that have been hotly debated throughout the ages. And um, we're not going to solve all those problems today. Let me read in verse 36. He says, now, if anyone thinks, here's what's happening. In some translations of the Bible, like the NASB now, these next few verses are translated as maybe a father and how he's supposed to handle his virgin daughter as far as maybe arranging a marriage for her. Um, That's sort of one side of looking at these next verses. I don't think that's what's happening. I think that he's continuing in this view of an unmarried woman and maybe her fiancé. And so here we'll read in verse 36. He says, If anyone thinks he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, in other words, if a young man is not behaving properly towards now his betrothed, so that means probably his fiancé, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry it is no sin, but whoever firmly is established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his, his betrothed, or his fiancée, does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. And so, so what's going on here? I think what's happening here is Paul is addressing, very likely, guys who are engaged to their fiancée, And they can't keep their hands off of her. He says in verse 36, if you think that you are behaving improperly towards your betrothed, if your passions are too strong, and to keep you from sinning, marry her. Get your hands off of her and marry her. Friends, this is why, just a little, this is Brad speaking, not the Bible. This is why I think long engagements are a bad idea. (laughs) They're a, I got a lot of north-souths on that so I don't think I have to go into further explanation. But long engagements are a bad idea. I thank God that when Jennifer and I got engaged on May 29, 1994, about a week later, my beeper went off in a movie theater in Savannah, Georgia where I was stationed at Fort Stewart and 18 hours later I was 10 kilometers south of Iraq in some remote portion of Kuwait and stayed there until about a week before we got married. It was very easy to be righteous with my betrothed when I was on the other side of the world in Kuwait. Paul is saying, get married. But he's not saying that if you're not already engaged to her and you're just failing sexually, that that should be an excuse for you to just marry the girlfriend that you just have no control with. No, he's not saying that. Don't take that too far. And he's also saying, when he says in verse 37, but if your heart's established and you have this control, this desire under control, and you've determined this in your heart, you can keep her as your betrothed. But if he marries, it's okay. But if you refrain from marriage, you will do even better. So he's not saying break up. He's just saying if you can keep the date on the calendar the same and you're under control, then okay, keep it like it is. So Paul addresses fiancés, and um, heavy petting. All right, let's finish it up in verse 39. A wife then is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. And so he speaks to widows. He's saying that, listen, again, he's encouraging sort of subtly to not get divorced. As long as your spouse lives, by the way, this goes both ways. Even though he's talking to the wife about the husband, this would apply to the wife as his husband dies, or her, yeah, uh, his husband if his wife dies. He's saying, as long as your spouse is alive, stay with him. But if your spouse dies, you're free to be married. And then he throws in this little phrase, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, verse 40, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the spirit of God. And so what I think he's saying there is that if you remarry or marry, you should marry a Christian, all right? I don't think you should be the missionary dater. Young lady, I think, I don't care how cute he is. I don't care if he dresses nice and has a decent job at the bank or Total Systems or Aflac. I don't care if his hair glistens in the sun. I don't care if he, just to appease you, prays over the meal. If he doesn't know Jesus... Don't date him and don't give your heart to him. Don't marry him. doesn't mean that you can't invite him to church and have some big brothers in Christ gang up on him and try and bring the gospel to bear on his life. But don't give your heart to a non-Christian. It almost always, always goes badly. And so Paul addresses those people as well. Okay, now let's look at then very quickly in summary three truths Three truths that I see in this, and then we'll receive communion. The first is very simply, don't waste your circumstances. Don't waste your circumstances. Paul addresses those people who are circumcised. Don't be so caught up in social pressure that you are missing the fact that God may have you as an example in whatever setting you're in. To turn the tables to display Christ. You may be a slave. You may be in a job you don't want. But he says, don't idolize what may be next for you and make it a functional savior. Don't waste your circumstance. Right now, I just... Look, are you you wasting your singleness? Are you wasting the less than ideal job that you may be in right now? Are you wasting it by unintentionally but selfishly making a functional savior out of some other circumstance. Don't waste where you are right now. And that then leads us to the second great truth that I see, where it says trust, where I would say that Paul is saying to us, trust God's good providence and be liberated from self-absorption. So, so how do you not waste your circumstance? Well, I think by understanding point number two here that I believe Paul is making is that we have the great privilege as children of God to trust a good and gracious father who does good for his people, who does good for his people, who loves his people. And listen, we, we need to divest ourselves of broken notions of fairness and goodness and love the Lord is providentially, this is historic Christianity, it may not be the Christianity of a lot of modern America and sort of the karma based culture that we live in, but this is historic Christianity that God is providentially in control of all things. Just a cursory reading of the Old Testament will will help you realize that God is providentially control of even evil and that often He allows evil to visit his children. I mean, that's what the whole book of Job is about. That he often brings his children into moments of affliction and suffering for the sake of tuning their hearts off of their circumstance in these 80 years into eternity. But because we are so self-absorbed And because we have defined life and happiness solely based on our temporal, earthly circumstances, we immediately default as Americans that if we suffer, then God can't be involved in that because these 80 years is all there is. But do you realize God often uses, in fact, if you're a Christian, the Bible promises it, that he will use the anvil of suffering and evil that might even come your way for the sake of his glory and your good, to lift your eyes from these 80 years and see eternity with Christ. Listen to this confession of the church back right after the Reformation. It's called the Belgic Confession of Faith. It is one of the most beautiful documents in the history of the church. A bunch of articles. I believe there's 38 or 39 of them. This was written by a Dutch reformer his name was Guido, which I think is awesome. I thought that was an Italian name, but evidently it's a Dutch name too. Guido de Brez wrote this back in the late 1500s. In Article 13, he wrote this beautiful, along with the help of some of the other reformers, he wrote this beautiful statement on the doctrine of God's providence. Listen to this. Article 13 of the Belgic Confession. It says, We believe that this good God, after he created all things did not abandon them to chance or fortune, but leads and governs them according to his holy will in such a way that nothing happens in this world without his orderly arrangement. In other words, there's no circumstance that you are in right now that God in his good providence has not brought you into for something bigger than your temporal pleasure. He goes on, yet God, or the confession goes on, yet God is not the author of nor can he be charged with the sin that occurs for his power and goodness are so great and incomprehensible that he arranges and does his work very well and justly even when the devils and wicked men act unjustly listen now to the humility the, that this confession encourages towards encourages us in we do not wish to inquire with undue curiosity into what he does that surpasses human understanding and is beyond our ability to comprehend But in all humility and reverence, we adore the just judgments of God, which are hidden from us, being content to be Christ's disciples, so as to learn not only what He shows us in His Word, without going beyond those limits. This doctrine gives us unspeakable comfort, since it teaches us that nothing can happen to us by chance, but only by the arrangement of our gracious Heavenly Father. He watches over us with Fatherly care, keeping all creatures under his control, so that none of the hairs on our heads, for they are all numbered, nor even a little bird can fall to the ground without the will of our Father. In this thought we rest, knowing that he holds in check the devils and all our enemies who cannot hurt us without his permission and will. And when he does loose them to on occasion hurt us or vex us, friends, it is always for our eternal good and his glory. And then it concludes, for that reason we reject the damnable error of the Epicureans, which were Greek philosophers, who say that God involves himself in nothing and leaves everything to chance. Friends, that will put steel in your spine. And trust in your heart when you face difficulty or less than desirable situations in this earth because you realize there is a providential good and gracious Father who arranges everything, even affliction, for the good of His people and the glory of His name. Now, let's not read this confession of the church away from Scripture. So let me just go and read very quickly for some of you that are doubting and saying, well, that's a man-made document. Let me just point you very quickly before we conclude with the third point to Peter's words in 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 19. Listen well. Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. And we might insert in for these purposes of this message today, even though Paul, uh, Peter's talking about something much more difficult the fiery trial that maybe these first century christians were dealing with maybe persecution who knows what it was but now we can insert maybe our less than ideal circumstance that is causing us to develop a functional savior and something else he says do not be surprised when that comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you but rejoice insofar as you share christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed if the righteous is scarcely saved what will become of the ungodly and the sinner and then listen to verse 13:19 this is a verse you need to memorize especially if you struggle with where God is when bad things happen in this world you need to memorize you this is this is spiritual steroids for the weak self-centered american soul that basically by default thinks that the world is governed by karma that if we can just do enough good then maybe god will respond and sort of there's this battle between good and evil called dualism and jesus hits a free throw at the end and we barely win no friends that's not the way it is listen to verse 19 you need to wrestle with verse 19 you need to memorize verse 19 verse 19 needs to seize you verse 19 needs to grab you verse 19 needs to shake you verse 19 needs to be drilled down in your heart verse 19 needs to be written in lipstick or dry erase marker on your bathroom mirror it needs to be on a three by five card on your gauge on not on the speed thing so you don't speed but maybe over to the gas whatever don't run it needs to be on your heart This is what it says. Verse 19 needs to wrestle you to the ground, pin you, and count to 50. This is what verse 19 says. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That sentence needs no explanation. Give yourself to a good providential God who does all things well for your eternal joy and his glory. And finally, I end with this. Point number three of the three truths. Live with eternity in view, not just these few short decades. Live with eternity in view, not just these few short decades. That's what Paul is saying in this text. Lift your eyes, self-absorbed Americans. Lift your eyes above the gas prices and the stock market and the job promotion and the desire to be married and the desire to have this or that. Lift your eyes above these things and lift your eyes to Christ. One of my favorite men living in this world is James Packer, J.I. Packer. And he wrote, I believe, in his classic Knowing God, these beautiful words. I've quoted them often. He says about God, and still he seeks the fellowship of his people and sends them both joy and sorrow to detach their hands from the things of this world and attach those hands to himself. That's what Paul is wanting us to do in this text, to detach from this world, to attach our hands to a God who promises us life forever so that we might be more productive. Now, friends, this isn't just for everybody. These truths that I've spelled out are only for those who have trusted in Christ. So this is not just some sort of happy thoughts to get you to think long range and now I'm going to send you back into your day. Friends, this is not true. This is not yet the privilege of everybody in this room. In order for these truths to be true in your life, you must turn from self-reliance, you must turn from sin, and you must trust in Jesus. The Bible says that Jesus came and lived among us a perfect and righteous life, and he laid down his life on the cross, and he took the punishment that should have been ours on the cross, and he rose again in victory over sin and death and all of its consequences. He commands all people everywhere to repent and believe and trust in Him. And so right now, if you are aware of the fact that you have not trusted in Christ, or maybe you've trusted in some functional Savior, that you right now, you need to believe in Jesus. We're not coming down to a point where I'm going to pray a prayer and have you repeat after me or fill out a card and come down to an altar. No, friends, that's not how you become a Christian. Those things may be helpful for you to do, How you become a Christian is you believe. You trust in Jesus right now. There's going to come a day when every person in this room will stand before God. What's your plea going to be? What's your plea? Had a pretty good job? No felons? A pretty good guy? These truths are only true for those of us in this room who have trusted in Jesus. Do that right now. Believe. Believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. That's about what we're going to Remember as we take this meal together what Jesus has done for us. That Jesus died on a cross bearing God's wrath against our sin and rebellion for us and then rising again in victory. Trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus and these truths will be true for you as well. Let's pray. Lord, as we come now to your table and as we've dealt with this very seemingly disjointed text where Paul seems to be all over the map Lord, would you now refocus our hearts on Christ? Lord, I confess that my satisfaction in life has been wrapped up in so many other things. So Lord, would you tune me into this great and glorious truth that true joy, true satisfaction rests only in you. Lord, as we come around your table, for the Christians in this room, would you stir their hearts with affection for Jesus? For the Christians in this room who have been sucked into idolatry by desiring some other circumstance in their life, over and above your goodness, God, would you tune their heart back into your sufficiency? And for, for the person in this room who is not yet a Christian, Lord, would you do what only you can do? Would you give them a new heart? whereby they then are enabled to believe in you, to turn from their sin and self-righteousness and moralism and trust in Christ alone. Lord, would you do these things, I pray, again for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.